Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss the implications of the Delta variant. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company, as well as in-kind support by DKB Med LLC. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith. Uh, you know, emails and questions about uh, booster shots is probably the number one question I've received, but number two would be uh, variants, especially the most recent variant, the mu variant, which uh, has been labeled a variant of interest by the World Health Organization. So uh, this week, we'll focus a bit on the variants and try to bring up to date at least uh, a general understanding. And of course, as with all COVID programs, this could be quickly outdated. But the variants uh, are, of course, a normal consequence of uh, viruses, which especially RNA viruses don't have a particular fidelity for uh, maintaining a strict genetic code. And the World Health Organization has three designations. And the first and probably the most currently important is the variants of concern, VOC. And there are only four, and these have all been designated based on uh, uh, clear evidence of either transmissibility that's uh, higher than uh, previously circulating virus, uh, perhaps worse, virulence, um, uh, reduced effectiveness of uh, vaccines, or if it's somehow impacting natural immunity or diagnostics. And the four uh, that we see here, and the first we discussed last winter was the alpha variant, but currently Delta uh, is the one that probably has the most impressive changes uh, with mutations that appear to facilitate increased transmissibility in the 50 to 70% club. And at least in countries where this has become the predominant variant, uh, it is skewed, especially in those that have active immunization programs to those that are not immunized. And uh, those, by and large, are younger adults and, uh, and children. And indeed, uh, at least in the United States, uh, many states are reporting increased numbers of uh, childhood infections or children in hospital, although uh, all are significantly less uh, likely uh, in children, as has always been the case with COVID-19, than compared to adult, older adults or those with risk factors. But what's been impressive to me, and this was true for the alpha variant that we saw uh, last winter, is the orange bar here represents the delta variant. And these are viral isolates sequenced 
um, and the information collated across the country. And within a very short order from uh, May and June till now, most recently, early September, the Delta variant now is approximately 99% of those viruses that are uh, sequenced, so uh, is quite representative. Now, uh, alpha remains now a tiny component. Uh, beta and gamma, which had been very worrisome earlier, are uh, a very low amount, and delta is the predominant with the smattering of others that you see there as well. And just to emphasize why delta has become so predominant has been that this virus seems to bind to its cellular receptor with greater affinity, that's the ACE2 receptor on host cells. And uh, infected people tend to carry much more virus. And these are probably the factors together that mean that if someone's infected, there's potential for increased transmissibility at twofold, as you see here. For example, instead of on average one person infecting two people, it might be more in the four to five range. And uh, what we're all striving for through vaccine or social distancing uh, and so on, or just acquired immunity is trying to get the number of people infected less than one. And of course that would reduce the numbers. Uh, and although the Delta variant's something that's been around long enough now that we've gained some understanding, it's not completely sure uh, why all the mutations in the Delta variant have contributed to its ability uh, to be so highly infectious. But what we uh, do know and is perhaps also concerning <clears throat> are changes in the so-called N-terminal domain of the spike protein, the protein of the virus that docks to host cells. And this uh, spike protein provides the outer coat of the virus. And changes there have uh, reduced the ability of uh, neutralizing antibodies, which render the vaccine uh, non-infectious. Uh, to bind. So it looks like you need higher levels uh, to really do a good job against the Delta variant. And what's become very clear is that uh, you might remember back in the winter, we said, well, gosh, even one dose of the um, Moderna or Pfizer vaccine seems to be protective. That is clearly not the case uh, with the Delta variant. And two doses uh, appear to offer less protection against complete infection or any infection, I should say, uh, compared to earlier studies, and especially in certain populations that uh, uh, people's immune system may not react as well to the vaccine, uh, but appears still to be highly effective against prevention of severe illness, which at the end of the day is, is most important, keeping people out of the hospital or dying. I'll just briefly mention Delta Plus, which is a sublineage and has an additional mutation also seen in the beta variant called K41N in the spike protein, uh, 417N. And uh, this also appears to facilitate cellular entry. Uh, the CDC has stopped uh, providing information on Delta Plus. They've just rolled that into Delta overall. But at last check in August, when they did separate it, accounted for about 15% of the variants. And there's uh, some concern that this additional mutation could blunt uh, immunity uh, that uh, might be garnered through vaccines or uh, given by monoclonal antibodies. So those are the variants of concern, which all four of those uh, variants have caused uh, trouble 
in countries in one form or another. And then we have a somewhat larger list of variants of interest. Now, uh, the way how I look at this is th these have mutations that we uh, scientists and virologists feel might have the potential to cause trouble, but aren't yet uh, prevalent enough uh, to uh, transfer into that variant of concern category. And you can see uh, a number here that you may have heard about in the news, especially Lambda and Mu, but uh, wherever these have been first described and uh, predominantly circulating, for example, Lambda and Mu in South America, they haven't really become the worldwide phenomenon that the Delta uh, variant has become. Indeed, the WHO has recently reported that only 0.1% of global cases worldwide is due to the mu variant. Now, um, uh, these potential uh, changes uh, could impact uh, and facilitate cellular entry or reduced antibody effects and so on, but these are uh, sort of predicted or theoretical, but uh, don't yet uh, rise to the level where practically uh, it's becoming a variant of interest. However, uh, what you may have heard is that mu has uh, been concerning because of the number of mutations it has. And just uh, by way of background, in case this becomes more troublesome, it shares features with three of the variants of concern. So it has two mutations that are very similar to the beta variant, which uh, really caused trouble with the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa whereby um, it, these mutations seem to cause uh, some immune evasion and facilitate uh, binding to the cell receptor. The alpha um, uh, variant, which uh, caused uh, most infections in Europe and North America this past winter, uh, this mu variant has one of these mutations, the P681, that uh, causes the spike protein to cleave more efficiently and promote cell uh, fusion so the virus can enter the cell. And then it also has one of the mutations from the Delta variant that again is in that N-terminal domain and might reduce um, the ability of antibodies to bind. What we know so far about the mu variant is uh, it's been detected at some level in all um, United States. Uh, the uh, WHO has reported it in 46 countries as of last week, uh, but importantly, there are uh, a sense that perhaps this will not uh, become a variant of concern. And why, why do we say that? Well, uh, where Mu had circulated rather widely uh, was in Ecuador and Colombia uh, earlier this year and accounted for about 40% of infections, but now is less. And therefore, it's an argument that it will not uh, replace Delta um, or, or uh, cause other effects. Now, uh, there's not a lot that we know about this mu variant yet. Uh, will it increase transmissibility or virulence, as some of these mutations might suggest? It's unclear. The, the little data we have so far uh, is from a preprint in Colombia where the mu variant was circulating rather widely, as you can see by the blue uh, colorings in the top A part of the graph. And in this study, uh, uh, what's commonly done are pseudo-neutralization assays where you take a, a virus similar to COVID-19, but not, uh, I'm sorry, it's COVID-2, but not infectious. And then um, see if, uh, for example, serum from people that uh, recovered from COVID-19 
or for example, CIRA after people uh, got their series of vaccine uh, are able to neutralize that uh, pseudovirus. So uh, what has been seen, as you can see here, is about a 12-fold reduction compared to people that had natural immunity. Uh, and those are in the B and C graph all the way on the right. Uh, but if you uh, got, for example, an mRNA vaccine like the Pfizer vaccine, there was about a, a 7.6-fold reduction. And these are almost similar to what you see in the green bars with the beta variant. Again, probably those two mutations that it shares with the beta variant probably accounting for this most. Now, does this really translate into uh, something that's especially troublesome? We'll have to wait and see, but it looks like Delta, even though it doesn't have nearly as much of a reduction, is the virus winner. So it's not all about uh, immune escape, but there are other features of the virus that promotes its success. And, and probably a lot of that has to do with how much virus is made in a routine infection. Now, the last category is one which luckily we have no members of, and that's variants of high consequence. This is the uh-oh uh, variant. And the definition there is that there's clear evidence that uh, prevention measures or medical countermeasures no longer work very well. And so this would be if you know the uh, ability to the vaccines to keep people out of the hospital falls significantly, if the overall effectiveness of preventing infection falls into uh, uh, low uh, percentages, then we would have a variant of high consequence. And of course, uh, this is the most uh, feared uh, issue. Now, there have been a couple of studies which I think the, the press have picked up on, and I, I just wanted to uh, uh, mention them and perhaps give a little more color. Uh, because I don't know if it's quite as ominous as it initially sounded. So there were two uh, reports from surveillance studies, this one from uh, uh, centers in nine states uh, in this past summer when the Delta variant has been circulating at high numbers, looking at hospitalizations, urgent care, or emergency room encounters. So it was a fairly high number of encounters and they were looking at the vaccine efficacy and overall, you're almost at 90%, which uh, is really quite good, but falls if you're older. And again, immune response when you get older uh, is not uncommon across the whole range of vaccines people get, influenza, uh, pneumonia vaccines and so on. So this is no surprise. However, they did break down the vaccines, and you might look at this and say, gosh, Pfizer doesn't look as robust, and we've all heard about perhaps Pfizer requiring boosters, uh, and maybe Moderna generates more antibodies, but I, I just want to be clear um, that although these numbers are indeed look different enough that you would come to that conclusion, uh, a lot depends on a number of factors. First of all, a lot of people got Pfizer early on are people that might have been exposed more frequently, such as healthcare workers, first responders, or, or people with comorbidities in advanced age or in nursing homes, for example. Um, uh, this would also be true for the J&J &J vaccine. Um, so uh, it's, it's a little hard to compare. And we also don't know how many people in this surveillance may have only gotten one shot of any of the mRNA vaccines compared to two. And then a different surveillance uh, group in 13 areas 
was done through this spring and summer, again, as Delta sort of came on board. And we're looking at uh, the key things we all worry about, that is, do you land in the hospital with severe COVID uh, vaccine or do you die? And uh, although the protection from infection looks a little less robust, meaning you might still get a chest cold or a head cold from the coronavirus, uh, the uh, protection from severe disease seems about as good as it did earlier in the year when we were predominantly looking at the alpha variant, um, uh, with perhaps, again, some older age groups, uh, perhaps it not holding up quite as well as it had seen earlier. So um, overall, I think this is still uh, news and uh, why I, I believe some scientists and um, vaccine experts have suggested that the need for boosters remains unclear and whether it will really move the needle. Um, we know the uh, Food and Drug Administration will shortly be holding a session and later on the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices in the United States to give a more formal uh, set of recommendations regarding booster need. So Faith, I, th I think uh, we have a few questions, but hopefully that varying information was helpful as uh, background and as you hear news moving ahead in the next few weeks. Yes, very helpful. Thank you so much. As a reminder to our learners, if you have any questions, you can submit those to QA at dkbmed.com. That's Q is in question, A is in answer at dkbmed.com. So on to our first question. In light of the U.S. campaign to administer booster shots for the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, our J&J recipients have questions about a booster of the same vaccine or transitioning to the mRNA vaccine altogether. When should we expect guidance for these patients? I hope soon. Uh <laughs> You know, as you may have seen, there's some concern that the uh, single dose of the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine may uh, not be giving as much protection and perhaps a booster will help. There's some preliminary information that suggests uh, the uh, second dose of J&J does indeed uh, give higher antibody levels, which is good news. Uh, and uh, the FDA will no doubt be getting that data from the company soon from a trial looking at second doses of protection uh, from um, a disease and so on. So I'm hoping that information should be out in the next few weeks. I think the questions posed are very reasonable. Uh, you're, uh, it's also asking whether you should mix up uh, vaccines and whether that affords better protection. Of course, we really don't have any quality information to give guidance there. So it's a, it's a guess whether uh, getting a booster with a different vaccine is helpful. Now, if you're immunosuppressed, uh, there uh, already is a recommendation for a third dose or a second dose, as it were. Um, and uh, many people have done, gone ahead and done that, uh, but uh, we don't really have enough information yet to give guidance, but I think it is uh, more likely you'll hear about a booster soon. Uh, for people that um, have received the J&J vaccine. Thank you very much. And here's our next question. Is it possible to differentiate between naturally acquired antibodies versus vaccinated antibodies on a serology test? Yeah, so you can, and this is where you have to be a little careful when you're selecting a test um, in either your hospital setting or if you're using one of the commercial labs. And um, of course, if people are immunized, they're mounting antibodies against the spike protein. So if you were ordering an anti-spike antibody test, it really cannot discriminate 
at all because uh, natural infection and immunization uh, hopefully produce spike antibodies in both. However, there is another uh, um, assay that looks at the viral nucleoprotein, the, the N protein. There are a number of companies that um, make that, uh, Roche probably being among the most um, widely available. So the anti-N antibody to the SARS-CoV um, uh, 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 virus is probably the way to figure out if you've had COVID-19. Although, as always, there can be cross-reactivity to some degree uh, with some of the uh, routine coronaviruses that circulate and cause the common cold. Okay, and our final question. As we enter flu season, what's the recommendation about concurrent flu and COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, so Faith, uh, this is uh, a different recommendation now. Uh, than it was earlier in the year. So when, when COVID immunizations first came out, it was said to only give it by itself, mainly to observe for side effects and so on. The current thought is, especially with the need to get an influenza vaccine, uh, it, there, you know, uh, as we enter into the fall, whether you're getting a primary COVID-19 series or uh, potentially a booster, you can get both at the same time, uh, usually in separate arms. And the idea is if you give simultaneous vaccines, the body does uh, produce a good response to both. We know this from a number of studies looking at influenza and tetanus, pneumococcal vaccine and influenza, for example. So there's no reason to suspect it wouldn't work with COVID-19 vaccine and influenza, although there haven't been uh, uh, large trials uh, looking at that, but that's the advice for this year. If you are not giving the vaccine simultaneously, you want to separate the two by at least uh, two weeks. Now, uh, that's not advised because many people never get around to the second vaccine, so uh, the strong recommendation to get both at the same time is encouraged, but if you are separating, wait at least two weeks because if you give them closer, the second vaccine uh, response may not be as good because uh, the body's still preoccupied uh, reacting to dose uh, vaccine dose number one. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you again for your time, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith, and uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in, and hope the information was helpful. Hope everyone stays well.